All right. Well, good morning, everyone. I apologize for my sickness. I am battling through uh, the last two weeks. And if I sound or cough a little bit, I apologize in advance. Uh, my energy levels are low, but uh, Lord willing, God will give me the strength uh, to be able to get through this hour. It's good to be back. Um, it's never fun to be sick during Christmas time. As you can imagine, the energy levels of having four children and family and having to keep a schedule and having to try to keep up with uh, energy levels. And I think I'm more frustrated about not having the energy level than I am than anything else. That's the battle more than the sickness is uh, trying to keep up with uh, the levels um, of, of that time. So I just wanted to share that with you. So we're at a time where um, we recognize that this time of the year is a time where we, uh, we, we long for the joy of Christmas. If you recall of the years, I'm at an age now where I could look back and recall of the times where I, I enjoyed this time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Every day was a special day. When I was at school, we celebrated some form of Christmas. Even though I did not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, nor did I understand what it meant, there was just something special about the decorations, about Santa Claus about the joy of knowing what am I going to get for Christmas, wondering what I'm going to get for Christmas, hoping I can get something new, a new toy, excited about opening up that present, being able to play with that toy for about two or three days and then get tired of it and put it in a closet for the rest of the year. But there's just something special. But as now as I'm getting older, that joyous feeling starts to diminish a bit. Now I'm... A f- Obviously, a husband and a father, not a grandfather yet, but as my children are getting older, we have a young one in the home at nine years old, but as my children are getting older, Christmas is diminishing for them as well as far as that joyous occasion here on earth where we enjoy the decorations, the excitement, the opening up of presents on on that Christmas morning. There's special food smells, the turkey, the ham, the manicotti, the lasagna, the spaghetti, the something that you have, all the fixings for us. As Italians, we have the special Christmas Eve food on Christmas Eve is the seven fishes, where my mother-in-law is better than a chef, and she creates this smorgasbord of incredible food, and I... I long for that every year. I don't have it all year long, so that one evening of just stuffing myself to the point where I can't breathe, I'm willing to do that because it's so joyous. So in the next morning when I wake up with a bellyache, it's worth the bellyache of eating the food the night before because I eat enough for like three weeks. My mother-in-law makes these um, calamare where they're stuffed and they're incredible and she just plops them in front of me about eight or nine or ten of them and I'm like mama there's still any more left and I haven't even started yet she goes yes Bruno there's plenty I made extra for you I said okay great mom because I'm going to probably get through these pretty quick and I'm eating through them and I'm excited the smells and the excitement of the year but how many times as we get older And we try to recapture these joyous occasions. How often do we look back and try to recapture and rekindle these childhood feelings, these emotions, when we recognize that as we get older, the joy of opening up a present on Sunday morning is not as exciting as it was when we were children. I mean, it's exciting for us to see our children and our grandchildren 
we're thankful for another year of living. But joy begins to diminish a bit. We start to realize that um, what we were holding on to begins to diminish just a little bit more. Our traditions, meaningful as they are, the family time, we don't get to see family as often as we would like to. This year, I no longer have a mother, a father, or an uncle. I have an aunt who's 88 years old, who's in Stanford, Connecticut, and another aunt who's in her early 70s. We used to go and spend Christmas Eve with one family, my, my father's brother, and then the next day with my mother's brother. All the kids from both sides of the family. It was exciting. Now all we do is see each other at funerals. The joy begins to diminish just a little bit. And we wonder as we get older, Christmas time changes. The feelings, the emotions, the excitement. I get caught sometimes watching the old shows, the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and the Santa Claus is coming to time and those little puppetry from the 70s. I turn it on, try to rekindle those feelings of joy. It's just not the same looking and trying to rekindle even sooner years of in the early 2000s with my children. And we watch some of those old Christmas shows to where we get tired of watching them. But it's just not the same. But we begin to create new traditions as parents and grandparents. We begin to try to, but it's still, there's something different. So if I were to come over here and I had a match or one of those clickers that you can light up when you're doing some kind of barbecuing. And if I were to take this off for just a minute, don't get nervous. I'm not trying to mess up the decoration here. It's a beautiful decoration. But if I had a match and just lit this candle, and if this candle represented joy in my life, would that candle extinguish more than burning? Would this candle remain burning for the sake of of what needs to be burning despite of. What is joy? Is joy just about an event or an old uh, tradition or something I could be reminded of when I was a young little boy? Or is joy something that needs to be burning all the time in my life? But where does this joy come from? This would represent in the life of a believer the Holy Spirit that protects the eternal flame of joy. Because the eternal flame of joy in our lives is established by God and God alone. And we're gonna talk about that this morning. But how often do we lose that? How often does it extinguish and we need it to burn again? And then we try to do it ourselves. We try to go backwards. We try to look back at the old days and try to rekindle old times. I'm not saying anything's wrong with that because I still try to do some of that. But I recognize that my attempt to do it, it just doesn't work. And I get more frustrated of trying to rekindle that joy when God's saying, that's an old joy, Bruno, it's dead. It's a memory, but it's dead. I wanna create new joys in your life. I wanna create and rekindle and restart something more, more exciting in your life. Those things of the past are something you could be reminded of, but today is a new day. And so, is joy part of your faded past or an eternal flame that never ends? See, that's the question. And if you have that candle, what does that look like today? See, many people today during this seasonal time go through what they call seasonal depression. Because they can't, when they look back, when they don't have a family they can look back to. 
Many today don't have mothers and fathers in their home. Many don't even have homes. Many don't even have something to hold on to. Many don't have parents, grandparents, or anyone um, to look to as a joy in their lives. And how can we go through that? See, I think what happens is what I call the comparative joys of life. When we begin to compare what we used to have to what God wants to create today, a, a joy that's alive and exciting and recreative, we go through this comparative joy thing. We go through the what ifs, the could have, the could haves, the should haves, the would haves. And we begin, our, our flame begins to dim and almost extinguish because we're holding on to something that God's saying, I don't want you to hold on to anymore. See, what we want to talk about is joy and eternal flame or just is it affected by the occasions of our lives? We have to ask those questions because so often we're taken back by it. When we look at our lives and things don't go well, when things don't go the way we would like them to go, or that people are not looking at things the way we look at things, we get frustrated, and then we become a bit depressed or down and out because the joy that we have, people don't seem to express or have. And it becomes frustrating at times. See, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, when God offered his son, what was the purpose? And as we look at the word joy, and as we think about the advent or thinking about hope and peace and joy and love, today we have to think about joy. What, it, what is that word and what does it mean? And in, in the Greek, it means extreme gladness. It's not affected by our situations or our circumstances. It's an inner foundational shema. It's a peace. It's something that exists no matter what's going around you, no matter what has hit you, no matter what has come against you, no matter how often you look at your life, you look at your children, you wonder when are they going to get out of this deep hole that they're in. Or when you look at the life of others or the world that we're surrounded in, you wonder when are we finally going to be able to get out of this struggle in our nation? When are we going to be able to have pure joy in our lives where everything we look at is just joyous? And God's saying, I don't know if I ever intended for that. But the occasion of Jesus coming was expressive when he came to say, I want to give you joy. Look with me closely before we go into, and you guys may not have this verse, but just look with me because in a few of the um, narratives that are uh, showing forth the first coming of Christ and the birth of Jesus, there's one narrative in Matthew that we're not going to talk about in depth, but I just wanted to bring forth some attention to this. It's chapter 2, verse 10, because the three wise men arrive, and it says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, that's a good version, because in the Greek, that's what it's really, they rejoiced with a very great joy. That's the literal Greek, that they rejoiced with the depth that they knew that this birth of Jesus, this baby, is the Messiah. They were, be, they were being told by God that this, this little child in a manger being placed in a home who should come in array and glory and exuberant joy where people all over the area of Israel should be rejoicing. He comes in a stinky old manger with animals around him laying in hay, but yet they rejoiced. And joy is not being affected by the occasion more than it leans in the foundational stance of life. And so we have to understand, so as we look at the context of, of the first coming of Jesus Christ, the birth of Christ, we have a specific account 
in Luke. And we're not, we're going to look at Luke chapter 2. So turn with me to Luke chapter 2, verse 8, because we know the occasion, we know the narrative, but we're going to bounce around a bit with some Bible verses to, to highlight the importance of this joy. But the people longed throughout history and in the Old Testament, the people of Israel longed to find their identity as a people of God. As we know in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we know that the Lord preserves his covenant, his promises, and his people throughout history. And throughout the lineage of David and the Davidic covenant and finding that Jesus comes 42 generations later, we understand that throughout Israel, they desire to be a strong and powerful nation. Yet to other nations surrounding them, they were just this weak nation leaning on the God of Israel. But a great position, yet man's individualistic nature often resists God. So here was Israel We as a people of God today, as the New Testament believers, are to lean on God. That's a great position to be. But too often in our Western mindsets, the Western individualistic mindset of America, we long to lean on our own wisdom. And we learn and lean on the idea that we could create joy in our lives through occasions and events. If our flame is extinguishing, we can light it up again. We could just light a match and throw a match on there, but it's a trick candle because it goes out. And automatically goes out. And we keep lighting matches. And before you know it, you keep lighting the match, lighting the match. You have this big, big, big pile of matches that were lit up. And you just sit there and it keeps going out. And you wonder within your entire being saying, why does it keep going out? What am I leaning on? Israel was doing the same thing. They were leaning on their desire to be a strong nation but could not be on their own. That's why they longed for a king. When Samuel said, what do you want? We want to be, we want to have a king like the other nations surrounding us. We want to be like other nations. We want to be powerful. We want to have an identity, a nationalistic identity to define of our, the, the power and the pride that we can have as being a people of Israel. But yet they often questioned, what about God? And so in the intertestamental period, the Jews fought for identity and national interest. However, in 63 BC, Rome conquered and the Jews were subservient to an empire. And under Roman rule, they were able to govern Israel and gain territory for Rome. However, under obvious oppression of Rome, the Jews longed to be set free and delivered from their reign over them, the oppression. And they were yearning for a Messiah who could deliver them from Rome. They were welcoming it. However, the Jews needed spiritual deliverance from their state of being sinners. So God was fulfilling the promise, the Missio Dei, the sending of the Son, the Father sending the Son from eternity past to eternity future. The mission was clear. He was sending the Son to save mankind from sin. So it wasn't the need for a Messiah to save them from Rome, but the need for a Messiah to save them from their sin. The state of their being wasn't in their physical realm. It was in their spiritual realm. And today, it's the same thing. It doesn't end today. Today, and yet 2018, we're still struggling with the idea that we need a Messiah, someone to save us from $21 trillion of debt in America when no one can save us from that but God and God alone. We live in an economy that is from God and not from man. We live in a theocratic government. We are his citizens in Christ And we're his people, and his people walking here on earth, we're not representative of America more than we're representative of Christ. 
And the joy that should continue to be burning in our lives is Jesus, not whether the occasions or the events create something in our lives. My wife and I have been so down financially that we should have given up and said, I give up on God, I had enough. There are many of you who said, you know what, with the physical ailments and everything going in my family, we should have given up. I know you, Steve, you should have given up a long time ago. Many of us could have said that, but we don't live under this economy. We live under theocratic government. And it was established at the birth of Christ, the first coming. Yes, in eternity past, but established here on earth through Christ. And we're, we're reminded of that. But see, God could have announced this to high officials, Senate leaders, the emperor himself. God could have announced it to the high priest, to the religious leaders, but he didn't. Because we know in this context, in the narrative, he announces it to shepherds. Lowly, despised, downtrodden people in society. But why? Why would he bring forth this incredible, joyous occasion, this announcement of saving mankind from their sin state and bringing it to a lowly people in the fields, dirty, in the trenches, smelling around a bunch of dumb animals? Sheep are the dumbest in the herd. Funny God calls us sheep. I mean, it's a true statement. But he's the chief shepherd. So if I could be the dumb sheep to be led by the chief shepherd, I'm happy with that. Call me dumb all day long. Call me ignorant all day long because I know I'm saved. And I know that there is eternal life waiting for me because Jesus set it up for me. See, the shepherds is what Jesus, God the Father, sending the Son, decided to make that announcement. Look with us at verse eight, and it says, in the same region where there were shepherds out in the field, at night, tending the sheep, because they were to be brought into the city to be sold. This was their lifeline. This is what they did for a living, these shepherds. Caring and tending, humble, caring for their sheep, not nursing them, but caring for them helping them through to grow, to be strong, so they could be sold and they can make some money. And they were keeping watch over there, that shepherding, tending stewardship, their flock by night. And verse nine, it says this. It says, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were, fe- they were filled with great fear. Now, understand the, the idea of humility. Look with me to Luke 138, because you have to look, in this narrative, you have to go back to chapter one. Just look with me, hold it, it's like a Bible drill today, because we're gonna go over some scripture. Chapter one, verse 38, it's just a page probably before in your Bible, talking about humility, talking about how God announced this birth. To Mary, it says, and Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. So when the announcement was from an angel, the person who received it was humbled. Verse 52 in the same chapter, she states, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. See, God has something to do with desiring his people to be humble. And the idea of shepherds, they're not looked upon in the scriptures as negative, but positive. So the scriptures are very clear that this motif of shepherding was positive to tend and steward and to be humble, not to lord over, but to care for and to be an example to the sheep, to be a light to the sheep. 
So it's verse, chap, or chapter two, verse nine. It says that the angel of the Lord comes. The presence of the Lord in heaven shows up to proclaim an important message. So that's where we see the angel of the Lord. That means there's a message from heaven come down here to earth. And we're gonna find out what that message is. But we know that the presence of God is shown forth here on earth because the angel is the messenger of God, angelos, his message in Greek, and the messenger comes to only speak that which God gives him, to speak. Now you see this, the angel of the Lord. Some would think this might have been a Christophany. I don't agree. I think it was an angel of the Lord, similar to Gabriel. Appeared to them an epiphany, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, meaning when the glory of God is present, that means there is something that God is trying to bring presence, but his presence is so shown that people will bow down. Because in the next part of this verse, it says that they were filled with great fear. And in fact, one version says absolutely terrified. They feared a great fear in the Greek. Why? Because when God shone forth his presence, judgment would come. In the Old Testament, you would see that. So immediately they thought they were going to be judged, that God was present to judge them. And they were concerned about this so-called message to come. They didn't know. We know it. We see it. But at that point in time, in history, as they were receiving it, they didn't know what the message was going to be. They thought God was going to kill them or smite them. Because in the Old Testament, we see of that. Then verse 10, it says this, do not be afraid, do not fear. Meaning he's saying, do not be afraid, fear not, the angel said to them, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Let me break this down. First of all, do not be afraid and do not fear is covenantal language from the Old Testament. When God says that you are not to fear, he's saying he's present. And when he's present and he's bringing some of great news, that means you do not have to fear fear of being judged. How often do we recognize that when we get closer to God, we think he's going to judge us more? How often that when we know that if we get before the Lord in prayer and really bear our hearts before him, he may expose something in our lives that needs to be dealt with. And sometimes what we do is we avoid that because of the piece of judgment and punishment, thinking God will punish us. Instead, we know in the scriptures in in Hebrews 12, it says that God disciplines those whom he loves. So when God comes and we go into his presence and he exposes sometimes, he's doing this in love. In the same way too, God, when he's bringing forth this message, it's not for the purpose of judgment, but to bring good news at that point. And in fact, the, the word good news is what we use for evangelism. Evangelize to proclaim something of great news. And here, this covenantal language is in Isaiah 41.10. Let me read it to you. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Meaning the right hand is usually of judgment. But upholding you, meaning he sustains you through the most difficult times in our lives. When joy comes, joy is evident when we suffer. When we struggle, when we go through hard times, when we're afraid to get exposed by God, when we go through suffering, when God wants to reveal something so he can heal us, we think God's out to judge us, to expose us, and to call us out, and to punish us, and to say, I told you not to do that. 
bad girl, bad boy. But instead, God's saying, no, I care for you. I love you. I want to bring you good news. I want to bring you good news to discipline you because I want to get this out of your life. I want you to grow in character. I brought my son for that purpose, for you to grow in Christ. And I give you this message that salvation doesn't come simply at justification, but at sanctification, ultimately at glorification. So this good news is offered. Even in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, it says, but as he was considered these things to, to Joseph, Joseph wanted to get rid of Mary after finding out she was pregnant. He said, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from his sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So the fear not is that God is with us. That is the connection of a covenantal language. Remember, the I am is ego a me. Jesus, the I am. Before Abraham, I am. So the presence of Jesus is saying that I will be with you. Fear not. No matter what you're going through, no matter what you're suffering, I am your eternal flame, your joy. I was brought here at the birth, the first coming, and I will remain until the second coming, and I will come back. The promise of joy is an eternal eschatological promise. And here's where God is saying that it's good news. It's a physical and spiritual deliverance. It's one that, see, now keep this in mind. Good news and Savior were not uncommon terms of this time. In fact, the emperor, Augustus, was announced as good news and the Savior of Rome. So it wasn't uncommon to use this. When the language was being forth by Luke, Luke was using common language for the reader to read and see. But what was the better news is not that he was a savior, because many would say a savior, but that there was offering of an eschatological eternal joy for all people. Now, at this time, it was the Jews. But we know in the Abrahamic covenant, the Gentiles will be grafted in. So the all people mentioned there was a futuristic, not just for the Jews alone. So in verse 11, you, say, you see this in chapter 2 of Luke. It says, today, for unto us is born this day or today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The word today is an important word. You might think of it just saying today, this present day. You think that Luke is just referring to that event, that occasion. You're thinking that when he's referring to that event occasion, that joy comes in that one day. But actually, the word is mentioned 11 times in the book of Luke and nine times in the book of Acts, which is both Luke, the author. And it references often to the identity of the beginning of the messianic era, the plan of the fulfillment of salvation. So it highlights the present coming of Christ and the Pentecost, the salvific fulfillment present in the church. So when Jesus came in the first coming, it wasn't just an occasion. It wasn't something we can get excited about for just that moment and then that flame goes out. It's not as though he came for one day, he lit the match, it just started the candle going and at the end of the day you're like, hey, I thought this candle was lit, what happened? But yet the wax didn't go down, it still remained. 
See, often when we look at this and we see, we see that this candle, when you light it, the wax will go down if you keep it lit long enough. But if a, a, a breeze comes in or someone just talks too much like me and just breathes over it, the light will go over. But when you're doing this, even that could be protected from a guy like me. Because now the flame can continue. The Holy Spirit is the one that protects the flame and keeps it eternal, burning, never extinguished. And see, the beauty of it is that the joy of the Lord comes and established because it's a message from heaven, established by God for a simple purpose. Because here, here's where it's, it's laid out in verse 11. Three terms of Jesus a savior, city of David, or from actually the Davidic line, and Christ the Lord. But it's Savior, Christ, and Lord. And this is important to highlight because in the Greek culture, saviors were often mentioned. But what distinguishes Jesus as the Savior from any other Savior is the next term here in verse 11, Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. In the Old Testament, Psalm 2.2 is a regal psalm, the king and here's what it says. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against the anointed. The anointed is Jesus. And in the Davidic, even in chapter one of Luke one, the Davidic references of the announcement of the birth, it's even in verse 27 of Luke one, it says, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. We know both in, the, in both lineages, Mary and Joseph go back to David. In verses 131 through 35, in the reading of the word of God, it says this, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Again, both narratives of Luke and Matthew. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, El Elyon. And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's the Davidic covenant. And it's out of his kingdom, there will be no end. 2 Samuel 7, 16, 12 through 16. And Mary said to angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered him, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child will be born and will be called holy, the Son of God. Be careful, there's a... There's a Pentecostal preacher in California, Bill Johnson, who has misled many people to believe that Jesus and his two natures of being in the hypostatic union of the two natures of Jesus, the Son of God, being both fully God and fully man, he would see back from a scholar of old in the Pentecostal movement of an Arianistic thought. Arianism of the third century believed that Jesus was just human that he was a God, some kind of different God. And today he is preaching that Jesus and us, his people are the same. That Jesus needed the, the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do the works of God. That he emptied himself in the, in the kinetic, what we call kinetic theory of emptying himself of his deity. That he actually needed the Holy Spirit 
to intercede with him or to take over his human 100% man. Foolish heresy to actually think that Jesus needs the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are not one. They're not the same. Jesus is the, is the second person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Father is the first person of the Trinity. They are one God, three persons. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. The three in one is so unique in that they have three distinct roles in the Trinity, harmonious in unity, as the Son of God is the subservient to the Father for the sake of the role, but yet same in essence that they are God in three persons. But you can never say that Jesus needed the Holy Spirit as though he could not do it because he's not God, because he is God in flesh. He is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who came. If he did not come, you and I would not be saved of our sin or have the opportunity to. He had to be a perfect sacrifice to appease the Father's wrath against sin. And the joy is that it does not come from us, that which was came from heaven as an announcement to earth has been established by God through the Missio Dei and Jesus, the person and the work of Christ, which we are established in, in Christ, seated with Christ in our sanctification because we've been justified, sanctified, and ultimately glorified because that's the eschatological joy that we have. Meaning this eternal flame must keep burning when we have the power of the Holy Spirit that's covering it. You and I, God is not interested in any of our pride or our power or our arrogance. He's not interested in us being independent or individualistic. If he needed us, he would never gave us Jesus. And we could save ourselves and what in the world would we need Jesus for? But Jesus came as the Christ, the Messiah, and ultimately the Lord, the sovereign God of the universe, which every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord of all. Look what Jesus even says. Because his first coming is recorded in Isaiah 61.1 and his second coming in verses two to three. But let me just highlight something in Luke chapter four. Luke chapter four. And it says this, verse 16. Jesus is surrounded by Rabbis, and he's considered one of those teachers. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, which he was not honored, by the way. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, which that's what they do. They, they read the scrolls. And, he, and in the scroll, the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me the Messiah, to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set as liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And like, What? You claim to be the Messiah? He's the Messiah, the Lord of all. The joy that's been given to us. You know, it's still not uncommon because emperors were considered lords. Not uncommon 
for people to say that an emperor was an anointed one. But no emperor, no physical man, no king on earth could offer eternal life because he could not be the perfect sacrifice for sin. He could not offer us eternal joy. He could not in any way allow my candle to burn bright. He cannot offer me the Holy Spirit. He cannot offer me anything because he's simply man. But God sent his son to be the Messiah, the incarnate, the 100% man, 100% God. And the beauty of it is this, that this joy is offered to all mankind. It's been delivered from heaven to earth to the lowly, humble people, established and maintained only by God, a divine eschatological fulfillment. Man doesn't create it, maintain it, or manipulate it. We can't do it. I can't light my own flame. Every time I do it, I just have this pile of matches, matches just sitting there that have been lit. And I can't keep it going. I try every day. I want it just to create it. I want it to be manifested in me. I want to say I did it. I want to be manipulated and say I've got joy. But I can't. Be sick for two weeks and try to be joyful. It's awful. It's awful. I told my wife every day and she got tired of it. I hate being sick. I hate it. There's nothing more in my life. I wish I hated sin more than I hate being sick. But I hate being sick more than I hate sin. Because it stops me from being energetic. And I'm dying of just trying to get a breath. But it's mostly what I'm dying is because i got to lean on God. Because of my individualistic nature, I want to be on my own. It's a battle internally. I can't conjure up joy in my life. See, this is how we keep joy in the midst of us. This is where we get it. We have to focus on humility and not the state of our humanity. We must focus on humility and not the state of our humanity because humanity says, I want to be on my own. Humanity wants to promote self. Humanity wants to get my own agenda, my own dream, and tell others about it. Humility says, God, whatever you want, I'm willing, because joy only comes from you. It's a submission. That's why I think God announced it to shepherds to show that I'm not interested in your humanity. I'm not interested in your self-promotion. I'm not interested in you lifting up yourself. I'm more interested in you humbling yourself, because then I'll exalt you. Another thing we have to understand, like the shepherds, to receive a joy and maintain a joy is be good stewards of what the Lord has given you. A shepherd tends the sheep, they're stewards of their sheep. Jesus is the chief shepherd. We're all shepherds. We're called to shepherd and disciple somebody. Lastly, promote and proclaim Christ, not your personal agenda. Look with me back at chapter two. Because you'll notice that what the shepherds did is what they should do. After the proclamation and the birth of Christ, it says in verse 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. The shepherds told them. They didn't keep it in. They received this joyous announcement this eternal eschatological fulfillment of Jesus the Messiah who came to save mankind from sin. Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel, said, I can't hold this in. I've got to tell somebody about it. It was proclaimed to them from heaven and they proclaimed it to others. 
You want to keep joy burning so bright in your life? You want that? Oh, man, the Holy Spirit loves when you proclaim the Son. Do you know that in John 16, the Holy Spirit proclaims that which is of Jesus? And if we proclaim Jesus, the Holy Spirit's going to cover us. Joy comes when we humble ourselves, surrender, allow God to bring forth that eternal flame in us, and then the Holy Spirit says, I'll keep you. Don't you worry about your flame. You just keep proclaiming the Son because that's what I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to bring glory to the Son. I love when you bring glory to the Son because that's my job. That's my role in the Trinity. Joy comes when we humble ourselves. Joy comes when we're good stewards of the kingdom of God. Joy comes when we proclaim Christ in our own agendas. Just think about it. God didn't announce it to high officials or people in high places. He announced it to lowly shepherds. I want to encourage you, if you're battling like me and you're challenged with what it means to be surrendered, wanting the joy to f- just flame up in your, in your being. I can't encourage you more enough than battle and fighting to be humble before God. I've been battling that, battling that, and battling that. I have to be transparent before you. It doesn't come easy. I'm 30 years in the Lord, and I have to battle every day to surrender to Christ because I have agendas, I have thoughts, I have ideas, and God's saying, surrender them, Let me work through you. It's good to battle because that means God is working in your life. That means there's conviction and there's a conscience that still exists in my being. If I weren't struggling, I'd be concerned. But I want you to know that this beautiful gospel that's been given to us for Christmas, the joy that's been given to us, the flame that can still be burning, can only be burned when we're surrendered. See, the gospel was given to us so that we could proclaim it to others. It's not just to simply keep it in our hearts, but to share the hope, the light of the world, the joy of this present Christmas. You know, I used to enjoy opening up presents. I gotta be honest with you. I don't even do any of the shopping. My wife does it. When my kids open them up in the morning, on the Christmas morning, I'm just as surprised as they are. I kid you not. She looks, she could look, she's laughing. I, I just look at the bills and say, okay, honey, how much more spending? Because it's not because this is the one time of the year we do it. We give, the, kids don't get much more throughout the year, but Christmas is their time. And I say, honey, bless them because we don't give them much during the year. And I'll tell you, it's, I get more excited for them saying, and then daddy, thank you. What did I get you? Honey, what did I get you? And she goes, you got us this. I'm like, okay. And Joya will just, little presents, and they'll just keep opening them up. They could be a pair of socks or something like that. But they're just excited about opening them up. Me, I get a few, but I don't care because Christmas isn't about that. Christmas is about the kingdom of God. And as we, as we recognize, let's take a moment and, and rest knowing that we can pray because as we go into a time of communion, Let's think about that first coming and the hope of the second coming, which will be a guarantee and give you that encouragement um, to be challenged in this time of, of communion. Um, but I want, I want you to just take a moment and pray and prepare your hearts to ask God to, to reinst- just 
revigor that, that flame, the burning flame, that eternal flame of joy. I want to give you a moment to pray. Just take a few moments. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for the eternal joy, the eschatological joy, the hope of Christ that is instilled and established by you and you alone. The message from heaven to earth that's been given to us and we did nothing for it. And as we are reminded of the communion of the body and blood of Jesus, thank you for reminding us that the purpose why he came was simply to suffer and die and to resurrect, to give us hope. See, without death, without, we couldn't have the resurrection. We just couldn't have it. He had to suffer and died. He was willing to do so. We're reminded of the, the body that was mangled, the 40 lashes that were thrown in the middle of his gut, the crown of thorns that was shoved into his head, being spit upon, laughed upon, mocked by soldiers around him. Rome laughing at this so-called king of the Jews. They laughed at the fact that he proclaimed to be the Messiah, the anointed one. They laughed at when he made proclamation. Even the high priest laughed at him. The Pharisees, those who understood and knew the prophecy, yet could not see it. They were blinded. They didn't see or know the joy that was presented here on earth. Yet, Jesus, you were willing to die, willing to take a brutal death on behalf of mankind. That is the message of Christmas. And we know the message of the Easter resurrection day. But it's every day for us. Christmas is every day. Jesus came and he's coming back again. So Father, thank you for the body that was broken. Thank you for the blood that was shed as redemption. And as we take this moment to pray, to confess our sin, that we would, if we don't know you, Lord, if we don't have a relationship with that we would pass the cup, that we would not come up, but that we would first make amends with you. But if, as believers, Lord, that we would recognize the need to confess our sin, to come and take these elements as a, as a simple remembrance of what you've done for us. And later, after we take the elements, to rejoice that you came to die on the cross for sin and to resurrect so that we have that hope again. So Lord, as we have this moment, pray that you would encourage us through this time. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen, amen.